Good morning, Storyline. It's so good to be together. You know, I love so much about that video is how people changed during the ride. From the beginning, when they're just like, what's going on? To by the time they're at the end, it's like a whole different thing that's happening. It's so cool, it's so beautiful. I hope we all are feeling good this morning. It's been a beautiful weekend so far, although I don't know if you noticed this last week, or the week before actually, there was, there were some days that felt like fall already. And uh, I'm already reminiscing about last summer, and it's still summer, technically. So uh, one of the highlights of the summer for our family was um, when my wife Lisa and our daughter Jenna uh, took a trip to Chicago, uh, just for a day, and they took Jenna's college roommate, and Jenna's college roommate's mom, before them, went on the architecture tour of the city of Chicago. It's something we'd heard about before. As basically local people, you'd think we've done it, but you know, you don't do these things until people are in town, and these folks are from Canada, and so they all went, they loved it, and they got back, they showed me all these amazing pictures, and so I started to look into the history of Chicago, which I had never really done before, and apparently, there's more to this town than just really bad baseball and football teams. <laughs> sorry, I'm so sorry. I just can't help myself. So sorry. Anyways, <clears throat> so here's the most surprising thing that I found out about Chicago. And I don't know how I didn't know this, okay? Over a century ago, the city of Chicago reversed the flow of the Chicago River. It's true. Naturally, the Chicago River runs into Lake Michigan. But in the year 1900, after a couple decades of work, actually, the river, and to this day, it still does, flows from Lake Michigan into the city and then through the city. Now, that is, talk about crazy. That is crazy. I had no idea. And um, how in the world did they do this? More importantly, why? And my question is, what was wrong with the natural course of things? And this, I think, happens, I don't, it happens to me, like, all the time. Like, everything's normal, everything's stable, and then one thing happens, and then another thing happens, and then all these things are happening, and, like, someone weird jumps on your elevator, or something comes along and turns everything around and upside down and inside out. It reverses the flow of your life. And I think what we're going to start to see in our read-through um, John this, this summer together. We are in chapter 12. And that's about, that's what we're going to see here. In the second, just a little bit less than half of the gospel of John, this biography of Jesus. And it's because the story of Jesus is about to take a dramatic turn um, and a surprising reversal. Because to this point, John's biography of Jesus has been all about like the story of God with us. Uh, living and loving real people, inviting, including, caring, restoring, forgiving, healing, and everything seems to be like flowing so nicely in, in this story. Actually, everything is great. Jesus' fame is growing, the crowds are gathering, and then Jesus suddenly like surprises everyone because he starts to talk about the end. Specifically, as in like, his own death. And it's like a serious party fall because, I mean, this is right at the height of his fame. 
So why this sudden and surprising reversal? Well, this is what the Bible says in John chapter 12. Now, there were some Greeks, and they came to Philip. Philip's one of Jesus' disciples, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. So Philip went to tell Andrew, his brother, and another disciple of Jesus. And Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. And Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father, my father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this reason I came to this hour. Now is the time for judgment on the world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So seemingly out of nowhere, Jesus begins talking about, he's foreshadowing his own death. And he's, he's making these statements, and in another part of this chapter, it says he knows that people aren't going to get this. You know, they're not going to get it at the time. He's saying it, and then he knows that and people have to look back in hindsight to put the pieces together. They're going to have to look in reverse. They're going to have to look in the rearview mirror. And so with the benefit of a little bit of hindsight, that's what we're going to try and do a little bit this morning. We're going to begin to consider how is the death of Jesus on the cross relevant for us in our real everyday lives. So there's just a just really a couple things that I want to wonder about together. And the first one for us to wonder about is just how scandalous this is. Jesus said of his death, it was a judgment on, the, on this world. Now, if you were with us, what would have been seven, ten weeks ago, when we were in chapter three, the question is, well, which is it, Jesus? Because in John chapter three, it says, he said, God so loved the world that he sent Jesus to die for us. So which is it? Is, it, is the death of Jesus a judgment on the world? Or does God love the world? I don't get it. And the answer seems to be yes to both. See, world can be used in two different ways in the Bible. It can mean all the people of the world, like it does, like Jesus is talking about and referring to in John chapter 3. Or it can mean the ways, the systems, and the values of the world which is what he's talking about here. So we pick this up by looking at what triggered this surprising turn. I mean, imagine Andrew and Philip, they're coming to him with good news, going, hey, some out of town guys wanna see you. And then all of a sudden, you know, he's, it's like more success, Jesus, more popularity. And then all of a sudden he starts talking about his death. Now, why? What triggered this? Because some Greeks came to him these are non-Jewish outsiders. They're the wrong race. They're the wrong religion. They were seen to be immoral and impure. And Jesus' response to their interest is, it's time for me to die. 
does not seem to go together at all, right? So this seems like super weird. So we have to wonder a little bit deeper. Here's the thing. When these outsiders came to Jerusalem, right? When they came to Jerusalem, they were looking for God. And this is what they would have found in Jerusalem. A wall. They would have found a wall literally built around the temple. So there was an outer wall, and then if you look at that picture, there's an inner wall around what's called the Holy of Holies. This is where God lived on earth, was behind that wall, in that room. But only Jews, only the people who were the right religion, the right race, who were pure enough and moral enough and good enough, could go in. Everyone else was excluded. In fact, along that wall, there would have been, they would have been posted all kinds of warning signs. Basically, a no trespassing sign. This is actually one of the signs that would have been on there. And the translation is Gentiles, or that's everybody who's not Jewish. Go beyond this wall upon pain of death. Not super inviting, right? <laughs> It's not like they would, sounds, doesn't sound like a super welcoming place. So at this point in the story, this is what's happening, okay? The insiders want to kill Jesus at least two times. John has told us already to this point, they want to kill him. We've seen it over and over in, in the book of John. We're going to see it again. But the outsiders are seeking him. The moral and the religious people are rejecting him, while the spiritually unclean and inferior are after him and, and want to receive him. So really what's happening here is Jesus isn't changing the subject when the, when, he's not changing the subject when the Greeks say, hey, we want to see Jesus. Jesus is saying this, like including all people, is what my death is about what it's for. Now they couldn't see that at the time when he said that, but looking back on it in hindsight, we can start to put these pieces together because the cross is a judgment of the way of thinking that says to be in, to get in, to belong, for God to be on your side, you first have to be qualified. You've got to get your act together. This is like the cold calculus of religion. And it goes something like this. Behave, get your acts together, believe, you gotta believe the right things, and then you can belong. And then you can belong. And Jesus is telling us his death reverses that flow completely. His way, which we've called the gospel of grace, the Bible refers to it as the gospel of grace, it begins with belonging. That's where it starts. And it's from belonging that we begin to experience and, and trust in God's goodness for us, which means we, be, we begin to believe differently about God. We start to form a relationship with God from within belonging where we believe and trust in his goodness for us.
for us. And what this ultimately leads to is what the Bible calls an obedience that comes from faith. So this, this belonging and this belief inspire and then empower us to live differently, to change, to become, if you will, our best selves or the best version of ourselves or however you want to put it. But the most important thing to see here is that the gospel of grace begins with belonging. The gospel of grace completely reverses the flow of religion. And this ancient wisdom that Jesus is espousing here is backed up by modern science. Dr. Rodney Stark is a, uh, he, he just passed away recently, but he's a sociologist of religion. He's written several books that, I, that are really amazing if you're super nerdy um, about how religions grow, how it is that people go from not being a part of religion to being a part of religion. And as he studied this, and he, he studied all different kinds of religions all throughout history, and, and he's discovered something very counterintuitive. This is true for all religions. This is what he says. The main thing that you've got to recognize is that growth is not really about faith. It's about relationships, belonging. What happens is, is that people form relationships and only then come to embrace religion. It doesn't happen the other way around. In the very first talk that I gave in Storyline, there was, I think, eight people in the room. This is the first quote I ever used. That that's how much it's a part of whose storyline, who we are longing to be as a community. We think of all the time and effort and energy that religion spends trying to get other people who are outside the wall to believe and behave in certain ways before they can be included. All the while, ironically, they're actually withholding the element that empowers belief and change, which is belonging. Their, their river is flowing in the wrong direction. When Jesus shows up, he is radically inclusive and accepting. He's hanging out with all the wrong people. He begins with belonging, and all these people that religion excluded start to change and grow and flourish. It is a scandal. It is an indictment of religion and the religious establishment of the time Believe me, they understood it perfectly. And it's why they knew we've got to kill this guy. Now, the, the way of the world says, and this very much includes religion, but the ways of the world just generally says, if you want to belong, you have to win. And the way you win in life and with God is to earn it, achieve it, attain it. And we always have to be enough. And we all know that feeling. We always have to be enough. Whatever it is, fill in the blank. And this makes life this dreadmill every day of having to win some race that we think we're in. But then Jesus comes along and he has no power, no position, no education, 
No riches. The only followers he can scrape together during his lifetime are uneducated peasants. Then he's executed at the age of 33, penniless, totally abandoned. By the world standards, Jesus is the biggest loser of all time. And yet, not just despite of all that, but here's what Jesus is saying here. It's because of all of that. All of that poverty and injustice and betrayal and vulnerability, Jesus becomes the most influential person who has ever walked the face of the earth. What a shocking reversal. No one saw this coming. And how did it happen? His movement, his revolution began with the simple grace of belonging. No walls around Jesus, no warning signs. And so while the world will tell you to go to the best schools, network, make a lot of money, seek out position and power and prestige, and maybe, maybe you'll make a little bit of a dent in life. The cross says if performance and position, if power and prosperity, if that's the direction, if that's the flow of your life, of our life, we are moving in the wrong direction. Jesus, John is showing us to this point, is God becoming human, weak, powerless. God being defeated, losing, and dying. And this is what Jesus is saying makes his gospel of grace possible for everyone. This is the path to flourishing. A life that makes a huge difference, not just in our own lives, but in the lives of those around us. It's the upside down kingdom where the way up is down, the way forward is backward, the way to influence is to serve, the way to real riches is to give your money away, the way to win is to lose. It is shocking and it's a scandalous reversal. And for anyone, for anyone like these Greeks in this encounter who are looking for God, to know him better, it means they're going to find that God has already been looking for them. And that changes everything. Everything has changed, everything could change. The world is completely different because of Jesus. There's just, there's absolutely no denying that. Scholars can debate who he was and all different kinds of things, but no one denies that he's the most influential, the most pivotal, the most important person in that sense who has ever lived. So here's, here's the question. Do you ever wonder how that happened? How in the world did that happen? How did the way of Jesus go from this new little, it, technically it was a cult of Judaism in this backward little province of the Roman Empire. How did it go from that to the largest belief system in the world? And it's yet another shocking reversal. You see, long before there were church buildings, hundreds of years before there were church buildings, seminaries, choirs, stained glass, long before there were professional clergy or unprofessional clergy, okay? Long before, long before there was a Bible, yeah, Long before the Bible existed, the way of Jesus spread like wildfire throughout the ancient world because of the way the followers of Jesus included 
and cared for others. That's how. In the ancient world, this, this, is, this was probably the biggest factor in it all. In the ancient world, plagues were commonplace. They were always happening, especially in cities. And, and when a plague would come, people did what we just did during a pandemic. You either locked down or you got out. And the masses, when these plagues would hit, they would leave. And tragically, they would leave their sick behind, which meant they were doomed to die. But the early followers of Jesus did something absolutely shocking. They flowed in the other direction. They stayed. They went out and served and took care of the sick. They sacrificed their own safety, their own well-being, their own health, their own wealth, their own time to care for others, even their enemies. And while it's true that many of the early Christians died of the plagues, because of this, many of the sick that they cared for didn't. And when the plagues subsided, those people who survived were deeply connected to their caregivers. They belonged to a new kind of community that had proven to them that they were loved. So this is what happened after all of these ancient plagues the church exploded. The number of people who identified as followers of Jesus exploded, coming out of the darkest and worst times in history. Had the early followers of Jesus opted for the way of the world and flowed toward power, toward control or security or purity, had they only cared about themselves and their own, locked down or got out, from a historical point of view, there is no reason to believe that the way of Jesus would have survived. It would have died with them. This should serve, I think, as a massive wake-up call to the contemporary church, which all too often opts for walls and warning signs and qualifications. Like, this is what you have to do, have to believe, to get and then you can belong. It is a form of spiritual quarantining. It should serve as a wake-up call when we look at how the way of Jesus exploded into the world. And it should serve as incredible inspiration and challenge, and a challenge to a community-like storyline that we're longing to be a community of faith in God's grace, to, to really be, to move with this desire to flow in the opposite direction not away from others, but toward them. So for many reasons, the first thing to see about the cross of Jesus is that it is a scandal, and it's still a scandal today. And, and it's an indictment, it's a judgment of the way of the world, while at the same time, it is the greatest act of self-sacrifice for the people of the world. Both things at the same time, it's beautiful. Another thing to wonder about is the cross is not only a scandal, but it's also an attraction. Jesus said, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. 
When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Now, forever, when I read that line, I thought it just was referring to his resurrection. Like this big victory of Jesus coming back to life and that's gonna attract people. And it's, that's not not true, but that's not what he's talking about. This is about being lifted up on the cross. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. You see, the Romans, when they put you up on a cross, it was an object lesson. Like, do not mess with us. Don't mess with our ways. Just go with the flow if you know what's good for you. We say it all the time when someone goes up against the powers that be, right? It's like, oh my God, they're going to crucify him. What do we mean by that? It means they're not just going to defeat this person. They're going to utterly destroy them in a public way. Like ruin their reputation, ruin their ability to recover, ruin their ability to ever move forward or certainly to gain any kind of followers or, or a following. But in the life and death of Jesus, the opposite happens. And here's why. Because every human heart is attracted to this. We are enthralled by it. It is the most powerful scene in every great movie. It's the climax of every great novel. It's the point of all the ancient myths and the key to every human heart. Who will love enough to give their life? The hero is revealed not in titles or authority or position or power, but in humility, in service, in sacrifice. The Savior isn't the strongest or the brightest or the richest or the purest. They're the ones who kept going moving in the direction of people who needed help, sacrificing themselves for others, and we're attracted to that. We are drawn to that. We're transfixed by it. Last week, I was watching a documentary about 9-11. It's, it's unbelievable to believe it's been 21 years since that awful day. And the heroism displayed every year I watch these and it just blows my mind what people did. The stories of so many people sacrificing their own lives to save other people, they move us to our very core. And I heard one this, this year that I had never heard before. And it's the story of New York fireman Oreo Palmer. He was ordered to go up to one of the towers he was 45 years old and like a triathlete. He's in fantastic shape. He was ordered to go up in one of the towers and to help find a, a way down for the people who were trapped above the fires, the impact point. When the first tower fell, the fire department ordered all of their people to evacuate the second tower because now they knew it's gonna come down too. Palmer defied those orders continued up the tower. He made it to the 78th floor. 78th floor, carrying about 50 pounds of gear. This is, by the, by the way, the 78th floor in that tower was the impact point. He found the only staircase that the explosion did not, that the, the crash did not destroy. And the only people who survived that day, who were above the impact site, survived because of him. His best friend said he knew with every step he continued going up, 
His chances of survival were going down. But he just kept going. Look, from saving Private Ryan to Braveheart, from Nathan Hale saying, I, I wish I had more than one life to give for my country, to Martin Luther King knowing sooner or later they're going to kill me. The human heart is inextricably drawn towards self-sacrificing love, especially when it's for the hopeless and for the helpless and for those who others have discarded because they're banged up. Who's that? Huh? Oh, he's a crackpot. Lives along the bushes. What's he do? I don't know. He used to be a trainer, farrier. Now he just looks after that horse. Come on, let's look at another barn. Howdy. Hello. You hungry? No, no, thanks. I'm fine. Charles Howard. Tom Smith. Nice to meet you, Tom. What's, uh, what's in his bandage? Oh, that's, uh, Hawthorne Root. It increases circulation. You want to sit down? Oh, all right. Thank you. <coughs> Will he get better? Already is, little. Will he race? No, not that one. So why are you fixing him? Because I can. Every horse is good for something. Dude, he could be a cart horse or a lead pony, and he's still nice to look at. You don't, you don't throw a whole life away just because he's banged up a little. More than anything, this is one of the reasons that Jesus has only followers. Followers. We cannot be forced into this. You cannot be forced into love. We cannot manipulate people into loving and caring like that. But we also can't help but be drawn to it, to this kind of love and this kind of sacrifice for others when it's lifted up. Think about this. Oreo Palmer, who gave, he gave his life for people, many people, he didn't know. But here's what he did know. He knew everyone he helped would accept it. The trainer in this 
uh, scene from Seabiscuit, he knew that this wounded horse would accept his loving care. On the cross, Jesus goes beyond this kind of love. Because he knew some, actually many people, might not accept his love and acceptance. Would ignore his sacrifice. And he did it anyway. Now, I don't usually read longer passages like this, but there's a Catholic teacher named Cynthia Virgo who articulates, I think, what Jesus is showing us here through his death so beautifully. Why it attracts us. Why it draws us into following toward belonging. This is what she wrote. The Sufi phrase, I was a hidden treasure and I loved to be known, is a mystical description of why God created the universe. Notice there is a subtle double meaning at work in this phrase. At one level, I loved to be known is a synonym for I longed to be known. But you can read the words in another way. I loved in order to be known. And when you do, they reveal a deeper spiritual truth. In order to become known to another, we must take the risk of loving that person, and this includes the real possibility of rejection, an even more painful prospect of heartbreak if the beloved is lost to us. Could it be like this? for God as well. Now think about that. God could choose to make himself known in any way, but he chose to do it through self-sacrificial love. Could it be, she continues, that this earthly realm, not in spite of, but because of its jagged edges, offers precisely the conditions for the expression of certain aspects of, design, of divine love that can become real in no other way. These mature and subtle flavors of love have no real context in a realm where there are no edges and boundaries, where all just flows. But when you run up against the hard edge and have to stand true to love anyway, what emerges is the most precious taste of pure divine love. I mean, imagine the love and the sacrifice of Oriole Palmer. Imagine the risk that he took for others. Now imagine what it would tell us about him if he took that risk, if he gave his life, knowing that some people in the tower would say, no thanks, I'm good right here. That is an entire different level of risk, of sacrifice of love. And that is what Jesus did. She ends this passage like this. I've often suspected that the most profound product of this world is tears. Tears express that vulnerability in which we can endure having our heart broken and go right on loving. This is what we see in the death of Jesus with the cross lifted up, 
without even knowing all the details of how the death of Jesus makes the grace of God possible, which is something that we're gonna be talking about in the coming weeks, I think we're drawn to this kind of love that doesn't just sacrifice itself for others, but does so at great risk, not knowing who will and will not accept it. This kind of love makes us question, I think, the flow of my life what and who I love and why and how. And if our life is just naturally flowing in the direction that we really want it to, that we need it to, maybe it's time for a great reversal. Jesus' death is the greatest reversal of all. He described it this way and invited us. He's inviting us to do the same. Unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. We don't have to go with the flow. That's the invitation of Jesus. We don't have to be motivated by fear, uh, be anxious about, worry about, uh, and long for what this world says is telling us. You've got to have this, achieve this, attain this to be enough to get in. There is another way, another direction our life can take, where we begin with belonging and start out with acceptance, where we already have love and forgiveness. And then this totally reverses the direction of our life from desperately seeking those things to try, to try instead to get them out into the world and to others. We become connected to the source, to the fountain of all blessing itself. And that changes everything. So how did Chicago reverse the flow of an entire river? Well, they excavated hundreds of millions of tons of earth. They dug down deep enough for long enough for the water to flow in a different direction. In other words, it wasn't easy, it was messy, it was a process, but the water now flows in a different direction. Of course, the real question is why, right? Like, they did it, why did they do it? Well, they did it because the natural flow of the river was taking all of the waste and the refuse from the city dumping it into the lake, which was also their source of drinking water. So they were polluting themselves. They were killing themselves slowly. But by digging down deep and reversing the flow, Chicago was drawing in the fresh, clean, life-giving water into their lives. And with this new source of life, the city exploded with growth and vitality. May it be so for all of us. Come thou fount of every blessing. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time and this place and for this opportunity to be together. We thank you that you draw all people to yourself through your death on the cross. I pray that you would help us to see it, to not walk away, to consider it, to look at the flow of our life and the direction that the natural flow is taking us. 
and to realize that we're just never going to get to where we need to be. We'll never be enough following the world's currents. So we thank you for coming to rescue us, to save us, and dying for us, and I pray that this week you would help us to not only see the beauty of your grace, but to share it as well. As we leave here this morning, I pray that you would help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for coming, folks. We'll see you next week.